Welcome to Simply Why, a podcast about money and purpose, where we pull back the curtain on running a financial advisory business focused on providing intentional advice to couples and families. I'm Dennis Morton. And I'm Katie Brown. Welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. Welcome back to the podcast. Katie, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. I'm excited to be back here. We've been talking about this for a while and love to jump back in. I know, and we're celebrating our five-year anniversary, so it's been a great time in the last week just to uh, do some reflecting, think about where we've been, where we're going, and we want to talk today about some of the things that have contributed to our learning curve over the last few years, contributed to some success, but why don't we start with one of the common misconceptions about Morton Brown Family Wealth, which is... Yeah, let's clarify the anniversary thing here. Yeah, true. Yep. <laughs> so, so this is the anniversary of Morton Brown Family Wealth. And just to clarify, Dennis and I are not spouses. We are not siblings. We did not inherit this business from our fathers. This is something where we had the privilege to be able to work together previously before launching Martin Brown. And we figured out we have a pretty good working relationship. Let's see what happens when we take this thing and make it our own. We're married, just not to each other. And we bring some of that insight from relationships that we have from the relationships that we observe in our clients. Really, it's been something where we watch the dynamic between couples and more and more we've realized this is something that, that deserves our attention, that there's a, there's a dynamic, there's a way that people partner in things, there's a language that they use, an awareness that they have that's really maybe a blind spot when it comes to finances, right? Yes. Let's flash back to when you and I first started working together. Mm-hmm. We took some personality assessments. There's the disc and the Colby and the, you know, the strengths finder and a lot of those things. We took one of those early on and uh, the results were a little bit interesting, let's so to speak. When we took the initial Colby A assessment where it went towards your instincts and kind of what how you naturally act on things, we came up pretty similar, didn't we? We did. I think that was in some respects kind of surprising because I think we recognized some differences within us and and how we do work. But I think the alignment came in those instincts and visionary alignment. And so it was interesting how we looked very similar on paper in, in the Colby assessment. But then when we matched them up, I think that's where the fascinating part was when we matched them up, what, what was the output? Do you remember some of the language that was put in there? Yeah. So one of the, one of the factors inside the Colby assessment is the implementer, someone who can build things. And Katie and I were so low on the implementer scores. We were really consistent. The language said, the readout said, don't ever build anything together. That's okay. So of course we then partnered and went on to to build a business. But I think that the thing was, we were both very meticulous in, in planning and organizing. It was our first step towards self-awareness. You know, for me, who am I coming into this potential partnership for you? Who am I coming into this potential partnership and how do we work well together? How are we complementary, and how do we communicate with each other? So I, I always credit that with like that initial dose of reality to say, who are we coming into this? There, there was a lot of humility in that readout and you're exactly right. I think we both were like a three on implementer and a lot of our personality was to put the processes together was to figure out the vision, the longer term vision, but then to put the pieces in place, that's where we struggled a little bit. So there was a lot of humility that came out of that. Mm-hmm. I think we were very fortunate though, in that at that time, when we took that initial behavioral assessment, 
we were also, we were gathering tons of information. We were learning from so many other people within our industry, who does what and how do they do it and how do they accomplish things. And so I think at the time we had a, a very strong thirst for knowledge. And then to couple that with what can we deliver on it and where do we need help? I think that paired very well. I think you need some of those outside sources. We're kind of discerning our path and our careers, and you have to think expansively about what's possible. And it gave us something to talk about that was more than just the, the work we were doing that day to day. I remember like we would come in and out of client meetings and be able to talk big picture about long-term stuff. And I think in any good partnership or any relationship, you need to have those things that keep you thinking yards down the field mm -hmm. and, uh, and what, what might be possible there. I agree. Just to stick with the personality assessments, the behavioral assessments that we took at the time. And we've actually, I think we both latched onto those and we've taken a handful of them over the years. What were some of the readouts from the other ones? And, and how do you think that has played into where we are right now as well? Oh, well, the, the other one that we did was the DISC assessment. And this was one that was given to us by our coach. Uh, again, we were coming on board and he wanted to get to know us. And he said, I need you, if you're going to work with me, you have to take this DISC assessment. So it's the talent insights uh, assessment. And it's more of where your natural, natural talents are instead of your instincts. And um, frankly, my, my readout is something short of Attila the Hun. And we share these. When we hire a new team member, we'll give them a DISC assessment. We'll also share ours with them. But it's, it's a warts and all approach to things. And I think the interesting part was when we both read ours and we were like, oh my gosh, this is kind of interesting because it hits the spot on many things. As similar as we were with the Colby, we were polar opposite on this one. Yes. I came in things like I tend to be more introverted. You tend to be more extroverted. I tend to be more uh, dominant in a conversation. You're more a peacemaker. It's it just, I thought it was interesting how suddenly we were like 12 and six on the dial. Yes. As, as you mentioned with the Colby, that's the instinct. With the disc, that's more of the behavior. Mm -hmm. We found a lot of alignment in our beliefs around the business, our beliefs around delivering value to clients and, and how we serve clients and how we serve families. But our process in getting to that point is different. And I think that's where those behavior differences come in and, and where they're very complementary. And, and when we think about a partnership, those are some of the indicators of success. The alignment in the vision and what you want to accomplish, but then the complementary skill sets to get to that point. I think in a lot of respects, we're very fortunate. We just kind of landed in those places. It was not necessarily planned, but I think in reflection, it's easier to see. How do you think about the pairing of our skill sets? I, I think it's helpful that we have a good balance between the strategic and the tactical. I tend to be someone who's looking out over the next hill. I'm not really good with the day-to-day task-oriented thing, but I think you get more energy off of that. Even your lists have lists. Like you like going in and, and ticking off those things. And I think that kind of balance is good. But I also think it's been very helpful to understand how to communicate. And that's, a, again, coming back to that awareness. What are the ways to speak with you that's going to be the most effective and responsive, like giving you time, quiet time to not interrupt and dedicate? That's, I've learned that to be really important over time. But I also think we, we create time for the strategic stuff too. Like we just had it this morning. Every couple of weeks, we'd break off, sit down for about 90 minutes and talk about the big things that we're tackling as a firm and as leaders and with, with the markets and our clients and everything else. And that strategic time, which we've been doing now for almost six years, 
has been, I think, a really formative thing that we speak the same language about about the big picture stuff. Mm-hmm. What do you think has been an important part of, of like what makes a successful partnership? And it's interesting because I think the things that make it successful partnership also make us better advisors. Even just the awareness of, okay, I'm going to share this thought or this idea. How is this going to come across? Am I giving space for thought? Just that that open communication, uh, both with one another, but then also pulling in the team. In my mind, the communication and then by extension, trust is probably one of the largest factors of success in once again, both a partnership, but then also bringing that to the client relationship. Other things are having that shared vision, having having alignment with our cultural beliefs. Mm-hmm. You had a set of statistics around what happens in family business or family dynamics and the reasons for failure. And, and it was like, you know, 60% of failure is due to lack of trust and communication within a family about group decision-making. 25% of failure is due to unprepared errors. At, at the very bottom, only 5% of failure is due to financial mistakes in planning, taxes, and investments. Mm-hmm. And here we are as financial professionals, and people sometimes think we're all about the, the product, the, the, the estate plan, the, the investment plan, the portfolio strategy, all those things. But what we found in partnership and with advising clients is so much of the risk of failure is around communication and lack of trust. Correct. While we need to have a good working knowledge of potential solutions, the solutions come at the tail end. Building the trust and really understanding what the families are trying to achieve, or even in our case, having a great understanding of, of one another's priorities and communicating through those, that's the number one indicator, I think, of success for realizing that fulfillment, whatever that fulfillment may be. Yeah. Yeah. We both listened to a podcast a while back. It was an interview with Brian Grazer and Ron Howard, who are the, the producer director behind you know, Academy Award-winning films going back almost 40 years. It was on Patrick O'Shaughnessy's podcast, and they, they shared some stories about how they initially developed trust. How do you think trust has evolved as a business partnership over the years? What are some hallmarks of that? For us, honestly, probably one of the biggest areas of trust has been getting to a point of alignment in our big goals, Mm -hmm. our big, hairy, audacious goals of what are we really trying to achieve and giving each other space to share what the important things are for us individually, for our families that would make this whole journey worthwhile. I agree. And I would encourage any couple or partnership or anything else, don't be afraid of those big, hairy, audacious goal conversations. Yes. Once we started thinking expansively about what we wanted to do as a business, almost immediately we started thinking about quality of life too. Like we put out there some some big numbers and what we thought we could do and growing the team and everything else. And then we paused and we're like, yeah, but that's going to be 10 years down the line and our, our families are going to be further down the path. We, our kids might be gone by then. How do we make sure we're not sacrificing that time? So we started adding in quality measures too. So we said after five years, every employee is going to be eligible for a five-week mini sabbatical, paid time off, go, go do what you need to do and, and come back refreshed. And I think having that qualitative alongside the quantitative when it comes to goal setting, it's an important part of our culture for what we do. There was an Inc. Magazine article, I think you were referencing this from last year. It said nine key things that successful business partners always do. And I, I thought it was fascinating. Number one, 
was have a successful history together before founding a company. And I think that's, that's an interesting part of, of our history is that we worked at the same firm for about seven or eight years before we actually worked closely together on clients. Mm-hmm. And so I think you have to kind of observe, okay, Katie does her thing over there. She does it well. Dennis does his thing over here. And then we had an appreciation before we had to start making some of those big decisions. And I think a lot of times you kind of rush into these things or it makes, maybe it makes financial sense. Maybe it makes you know, tactical sense. But the vision has to congeal as you're going along. Right. I think working sort of independently under the same firm, but then eventually working more intentionally together toward goals was extremely instrumental in the success of launching the firm here, launching Morton Brown and going forward. But I will I will say that I recognize that more in reflection, not in the moment. Mm-hmm. I think in the moment, it's really hard to figure that stuff out. With any big decision, this applies whether you're retiring or changing jobs or going through any major transition, there's what you're leaving behind and what you're going towards. You have to develop those senses at the same time. It's really easy to say, all right, well, it's not this, but what is the thing that you're going to? And I think that's one of the facets of any really good partnership is it's a creative endeavor. Right. I would agree. We talk about trust building. I think trust sometimes is a leap of faith. I think the validation sometimes is, is really important just to validate that trust over time. There was a moment going back three years that I think was a really important kind of trust moment for us. When you think about the critical decisions and challenges that you face after the pandemic happened. So by April of 2020, the, the mark, stock market was down 37, 40%, something like that. And a lot of uncertainty, things were shutting down. And suddenly these government programs started rolling out, things like the PPP program. And you look at, okay, there are resources available to us. Do we need them? Maybe. And I remember you and I having the conversation about, should we apply for a PPP loan? We don't know what the future holds. And I think our, our framework around it was, yes, we should do it because if, you know, God forbid something happens down the line and we need to have tough conversations with our team, can we answer the question, did you do everything in your power to, to try and stack the deck in your favor and do what you could when it was available? So we took the loan and, and then you know, a few months go by and, and things start to improve in the markets and we get back to no, more normalized operations, certainly than a lot of other service industries were you know, at that time. And by September, it was starting to be a lot of questions about the loan forgiveness and what the process was going to be. And I think we were both getting a little bit frustrated with just, we don't need this. We didn't we end up needing the money for anything. We could apply for forgiveness and have it just uh, go into our books. And I remember walking into your office one day and saying, forget it. Let's just send the money back with interest and move on with our lives. And you didn't bat an eye and said, yep, that's what we're going to do. I think the next day we sent back the check. And coming back to those instincts, the things that where we were very much aligned on that initial personality assessment, our instincts were so aligned that we could make the big decisions, have no conscience about it, and just move on and and do good things. And I don't think it's a coincidence that we kind of hit on a nice growth trend after that, because we just weren't distracted with all those outside things. So I thought that was a really important kind of validation of the trust that we could make big decisions together and it would work out well. I agree. I think it was. And I think that we did have a lot of alignment, both in the rationale, the reasoning for applying for the PPP in the first place. And and it very much came down to, it's not just our personal livelihoods, our personal families. It's that of our employees too. And for for those of you listening that don't know, 
the way a firm like ours is typically structured is that a lot of our revenue is tied directly to market performance. And so when you see significant reductions in market performance, I don't want to say alarm bells because I, I think very rarely we have alarm bells go off in our firm. And I'm very proud of that. I think we typically keep a pretty calm environment, but you do start to question we had never gone through a pandemic before. We'd never seen an economic shutdown. You know, we didn't know how far deep that was going to go. So I think that we took that loan for all the right reasons, but then we were also very aligned in the way that we think about our potential for success and also the way that we think about the true intention of, of those dollars I think there are any number of reasons to apply for the loan, to keep the loan, to request forgiveness for the loan. And I think there are any number of reasons to, to be very comfortable and confident with securing that money for you and your business. So this is this is not a reflection of what I think about anybody else and what they, they did with you know the PPP funding. But for us, I think we both looked up and said, we are on solid footing. We don't need this. And in a lot of respects, in our mind, those dollars are not intended for us. But I also think it was a good test of our trust for one another. And I think that's good for any partnership because that helps to bring future clarity to other things that might pop up. Mm -hmm. Kind of another extension example of that is all of the ERTC funding that came out. And we had a short conversation with our accountant when he said, all right, you might want to apply for this. There might be some funding out there. And both of us very quickly said, nope, we're good. That's fine. We feel very comfortable in the financial stability of our firm as it is, and we don't need to apply for that. I agree with you. There's a there's a muscle building that happens with challenging conversations. We see that in other relationships as well, in, in our client relationships, is the longer things go untalked about, you're not building that muscle to have those critical conversations when the time comes. Along those lines, for you, what are the most challenging conversations to have in a partnership? Or what, what's the most challenging topic? I think any type of topic that gets at how is this going to personally affect the individual livelihood or family of the other across the table? Mm. Whether it comes down to the division of labor and where that might bleed over or to how we are distributing profits or spending our money or reinvesting. Once again, like our clients, you're going to have those base expenses and everything else, but then there's usually a pool where you are very intentional about, okay, what do we want to support? What do we want to reinvest in? What do we want distributed out in some form or fashion? Once you kind of make that leap into what does that mean for one another? I think that can get more sensitive. Right. And that, that's where I think it's been important having our, our spouses involved the, the whole time and just sitting down. I mean, you, you remember those those early conversations when we kind of pitched the business plan to them and made, made sure they were they were involved and we're, we're snickering about this one because I don't know what Katie said at the initial meeting where we presented our business plan to our spouses, but for what I think it was something to the effect of Katie might have said that we might not be profitable for the first few months or so. And I think my wife heard there's going to be no money for several months and or for some long period, some period of time. And uh, so that, that kind of set the alarm bells up. But I think one of the ways to mitigate that is to understand who, who are the stakeholders. Can, I think that's your point. Who are the stakeholders here? Yes. And if we're going to talk about this, is, is everyone represented at the table with the voice? And, and we have that. Just I think being intentional about it has, has helped. I think the most challenging conversation for me is uh, sometimes around motivations. You and I grew up differently in the business. You know, I, I, I've had to, had to strip away the, the, the commission-based and, and salesy 
training that I had to migrate to where we are now, which is, which is kind of an advisory capacity. But I think motivations can be hard to discern sometimes. And that's what well, was another you know, personality assessment that we did. We kind of got into our motivations and, and um, yours was pretty interesting in how your motive and it helped me to understand you. I think it was more than any of the other ones helped me to understand kind of where you're coming from. What were some of the things that motivated you or did not motivate you? <laughs> You know, it's so funny because I did recently look at this. So we did this Reese motivation profile a handful of years ago. I don't know exactly when. It looks at like 16 different areas of motivation. And then you take that and ask your top life questions. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, Dennis, it cracks me up because your, your second life question makes all the sense in the world to me. Your second question is, what is my vision for the future? Oh, yeah. Big picture. And, and that is, that is a, a huge strength that you bring to this partnership is, is looking out and, and helping to create that vision for the future and that, that strategy. And, and it's, it's exciting. Your first question was, <laughs> do you remember what it was? Go ahead. You can share. Okay. Can I skip this meal? <laughs> like, uh -huh. like, okay, I'm on a roll here. I don't think I really need to eat. Can I just skip this? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Which, which is so true. I'll get to two o'clock in the afternoon and be like, you know what? I haven't eaten anything yet today. That's kind of wild. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that's an army thing or, or what, but yeah, it was like, can I skip a meal? And another one that kind of is in contrast to get to your top one, your number two was, your number two was, how can I be friends with this person? I think one of, the, one of these lessons said, strangers are friends that Katie hasn't met yet. So it's like, how, how can I be friends with someone? One of mine was, when can I be by myself? Yeah. So, <laughs> there's a reason why my office is all the way in the back and Katie's is up where everyone else is. Uh, so it just, there, there's just inclinations. And I, I think what, what it tells us is that we're coming to this from a couple different places. There's a strength in motivation, but that understanding has, has helped me to get you better, uh, at least a little bit. And your, your number one was, um, do you remember what your number one was? Yeah, yeah actually I, I I looked at that same time I looked at yours. So when can I work out? Like I, I need that physical outlet. I do. I, I get very antsy and I, I love our standing desks. Mm -hmm. I think they're awesome. And even just being on third floor and just walking the stairs or heading outside for a short walk at lunchtime, my husband knows, Deke knows. If I'm frustrated about something, sometimes he just has to pause for a minute. Be like, Katie, go for a run and then we'll come back and talk. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Meanwhile, my strategy is to be hangry, <laughs> skipping, skipping. We're both staying lean and mean in very different ways. So, <laughs> Going back to some of our, our natural tendencies or inclinations and, and behaviors and everything else, what are things from like your upbringing, do you think that, that brings passion to the work that you do now? I've always had a strong sense of righting a wrong, mm -hmm. seeing something that needs to be fixed not fixed with your hands because I have no mechanical inclination. As, as we know, don't, don't ever build anything, but situations that need to be fixed. And when I, when I came into the financial industry, I thought I would be solving things for my clients. And then the more I got visibility on how the industry worked, I realized that I'm really trying to do my part to fix the industry, that, that it wasn't always about the clients. And that's where I've used this term zeal of a convert. That's where suddenly I, I caught fire and really started immersing myself in how to run a good business and how to be a good advisor because I saw how much the industry was not aligned toward our clients and was sometimes in some cases harming and I wanted to fix it. 
And I think like you and I, I found a sympathetic ear as you and I talked more and more about that potential. And I think I can follow that thread through my life. And, and I'm, I'm proud of that. Our firm is designed in that way. And, and there's a little bit of a rebellious streak to it. And I like that. Yeah. And that, that makes a lot of sense. I think from the assessments that the way that I read some of yours is, is the desire to be a leader, be a visionary, but also have, um, I don't know what the right word here is. It's, it's not vengeance, although, it, but, but. Oh, oh boy. Here's, here, here comes Attila the Hun again. So. <laughs> no, but, but to, to be bold and be like, you know, there's a better way to do things and there's a better way to serve people. And there's a, and not that we have all the right answers, but to raise that bar and that expectation for what clients expect of their advisors. Interesting. Interesting. What about you? What, what's, what's a thread that you can follow from upbringing to now that would give you an indication that, that you would be successful at this? I mean, I think there's maybe a couple of different ones and, and maybe at some point we spend a little more focus on this, but having parents as small business owners and seeing what goes into running a business and, and how they divided the labor and the things that they expected from it, but also witnessing some of the struggles. My parents struggled financially, but always provided and always saved. And I, I think there were certain things that were just rooted in me from childhood to you know, save money, work hard, don't expect anything from anybody, but yet you have the opportunity to create something and to, to make what you want to make of your career and your life. I think a lot of those things have pulled forward for me. What's the best team you were ever on? Hmm. Could be sports or otherwise. Maybe my college rugby team. Nice. Yeah. What made it work? For anybody that's played rugby or knows rugby, it is a very unique sport in that it's very rough. It's intense. It's physical. You work really hard and then you celebrate with one another. After the game, the expectation is that you you spend the, the afternoon with the team that you just played against and that you just worked really hard to try to beat and literally bruised and hobbling in. But there's there's an after party and you celebrate together. It's, it's a really unique culture, mm-hmm. very supportive. I had amazing coaches and loved the women that I played with and just had a blast with the women that I played against. I, th- I think you bring up an important point there. There's a lot to be said for celebrating. From the beginning, we have, we have a little bell in our office. Yeah. Every time a new household would, would join our community, hear the bell ring. You know, it's just that little reminder that like, hey, it, it's, it's worth celebrating here. And I think that's an important part of it. Otherwise, everyone just kind of takes their ball and goes home every, at the end of every day. And it doesn't compound the joy, I don't think. Agreed. One of my favorite examples of, of partnership is actually not from sports. It's not from business. I love the idea of a rock band. I think just, there's something in the chemistry of a musical endeavor that is really challenging. You see bands that have stuck together for a long time. Like Aerosmith just announced their farewell tour next year. So they're going to be, oh. yeah, bands that stay together for a really long time. There's a chemistry. Everyone brings something different. The drummer's not trying to be the guitar player. Everyone's bringing something different to the table. So I'm going to ask you this all time. Who is your favorite duo in musical history? <laughs> I mean, you've got some options here. You you could go Sonny and Cher. You could go Hall and Oates. You could you could go anywhere with the Black Keys, the White Stripes, and there's there's a lot out there. Who's your favorite musical duo and why? Okay, it's funny that you asked me this because I, I feel like this is an area maybe you don't know me well enough yet. Good. That, that, that's where <laughs> we were trying to go today. We're we're, we're mining deep now. <laughs> 
Okay. I love black keys. I love white stripes. And actually I, I probably would. Funny that you say that. I was listening to white stripes this morning on the way into work. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Big Jack white fan. Um, but I was gonna say, I don't think you know me well enough because I am horrible at naming bands or singers or any, or names of songs on the spot, but I'll sing along to anything. Oh, okay. Probably not with the right words. <laughs> I recognize it all, but I am awful at thinking of the names on the spot. Oh, yeah. I, I got to say, I, I'm a huge Tears for Fears fan. Oh, that's good. Like, so if you're looking for an 80s pop duo, Songs from the Big Chair, I think is 40 years old now. So that's just, yeah. just some classic, classic stuff. But there's a quote from Keith Richards that I love, which is, there's no substitute for live work to keep a band together. The Stones have been doing it for 60 years. And I think if you're to translate that to a business partnership or any other relationship, you got to be out there living. Like a band on the road is a band that's functioning. Mm -hmm. A band that's sitting at home, infighting, just getting at each other, it doesn't work. There's certain elements of what we do that could be considered the live work. You know, like this, this is live work. Right. Doing creative things, doing things that require chemistry. What's your example of live work that you do? You know, how do you, how do you, how do you go out there and do your thing to the best of your ability together? And, and I think it keeps things vital. Yes. Yeah. I think that's a really good example. I think that makes a lot of sense. So a lot of these conversations that we have are striking the balance between financial advisors and advisor owners. There's just a different side of the brain that's worked when you're both an entrepreneur running a business making important strategic decisions and turning around and being a client facing advisor, helping families, couples, spouses to navigate their financial plans. So what we're hoping to do is kind of pull back the curtain on the way that we lead and run a business and how it translates into us being effective advisors and, and just hopefully good observers of, of the situations that we see in the work that we do. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Simply Why, a podcast about money and purpose. We hope you enjoyed getting to know us, how we approach leading a financial advisory practice, and the work we do every day to help families and couples make important financial decisions. Morton Brown Family Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This podcast is designed for educational and informational purposes and not intended as investment advice. More information can be found at www.mortonbrownfw.com.